Have you heard of John D'Antonio? There's a lot of misunderstanding of, say, compacts and compact law. Water resource management that would allow for you to manage yourselves out of drought periods. Now most of the communities actually have, uh, you know, running water. John D'Antonio is a professional engineer who studied civil engineering at UNM and who works in water resources. He was the state engineer for New Mexico two times, once from 2003 to 2011 and then again from 2019 to 2021. The state engineer manages water for the state of New Mexico, including working with the policy and litigation of major settlements and compacts. In this episode, I ask him about being the state engineer, what he accomplished, and his hopes for the future of water in New Mexico. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Yeah, so thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. The thing that I am most curious about is that I saw that you were the state engineer for New Mexico two different times. And I'm wondering, why did you go back? Well, it's a good question. And uh, I actually worked for four different governors. Um, and so the, the, the very first time I, uh, I worked for Governor Johnson, he had, a, he had pointed me back in 2001 as the, uh, what we called a, a RAP director, Water Resource Allocation Program. It was a brand new division within the state engineer's office. And um, so I was I was managing the all the technical areas, the dam safety, the hydrology bureau, uh, water use and conservation bureau, and all the water rights division offices, uh, and and did that um, until for for probably about a year and a half. Uh, in the middle of two thousand and two, it was the end of Governor Johnson's uh, time frame. So there there was about six months left, and he asked me to be the secretary of the New Mexico Environment Department. Which um, uh, it's hard to say no to a governor when they ask you to to take something over. So I, I did that. So I left the state engineer's office briefly. Uh, governor Richardson uh, won the next election, and um, I met with him as the essentially with his transition team as the New Mexico Environment Department secretary, and they asked me to uh, apply for the state engineer's office. So I. So I did that, was successful, and worked for Governor Richardson for eight years. Uh, and then I stayed on for Governor Martinez for almost a year. And uh, at that point, I decided that uh, there was another position. I had started my career with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and their lead position was uh, the guy was retiring, uh, the, the deputy district engineer for the Albuquerque district, and they asked me to apply for it. And just from a career standpoint, uh, I thought it was a, a good opportunity for me to go back to the Corps of Engineers and kind of finish that off. So I, I was there for almost eight years. And um, and so I had worked for Governor Martinez for about a year. And then uh, in 2019, when uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham was um, elected, she asked me and her staff asked me to come back as a New Mexico state engineer. And, and your question being, why did I come back? And that's a lot of people ask me that question. Um, it was because of the challenges that I um, I had seen. I think when the time that I was gone for that eight-year period, 
there was not a lot that I could see that really was accomplished. And I had teed up a, a lot of things with active water resource management and some of the things that I thought could have gotten done. Um, and I think for the most part, it seemed like the agency funding wasn't there. There was, um, there was some, some issues that I thought, and when they asked me to come back, I thought I could come back and, and refocus the agency on, uh, making, uh, more accomplishments. And I, you know, I think we had a real successful run, especially during the Richardson era. And I thought if there was a little bit more focus placed on water, that we could have another successful run uh, with the Lujan Grisham uh, administration. So when you did come back, did you feel like you accomplished what you wanted to in that sense? Um, not as no, and I say no, uh, and because there was there were a lot of uh, disruptions, I think, and mainly I think mainly because of COVID, um, that was a, a, a big disruptor for I think a lot of a lot of folks. Um, and when we when I came back, I had a far less uh, employees. I think the the agency had been somewhat let's say gutted, but there was probably seventy less less positions than I had when I was the state engineer under the uh, Richardson administration. And that translates into a lot of, uh, you know, if you, if you do the math on, on, on a full-time employee working 2000 hours a year and being down 70 employees, uh, that's, that's a, a huge number of hours that uh, aren't being applied towards solving the state's water problems and so uh, it was. It was more difficult uh, to accomplish some of the things that we were after. We still had a lot of challenges with Indian water rights settlements and uh, and uh, severe drought, and uh, the the Colorado River issues were heating up. And uh, we were as as New Mexico is involved in all those issues, including uh, a lawsuit in the Lower Rio Grande with the state of Texas to New Mexico. We were so busy and pulled in so many different directions. It was a little bit hard to to stay um, stay on, on on just one aspect of of moving um, moving everything forward like we had done during the Richardson administration because there were so many more challenges with a far less uh, people when I when I came back um, in 2019. What's something that you feel that you did accomplish during either of your terms as the state engineer or something that you contributed to? Well, I think the the biggest thing that we contributed to besides, um, so one, one major thing was settling uh, three large Indian water rights settlements within the state of New Mexico. And so we were able to uh, work closely with the Navajo Nation and and settle their their claims in the San Juan Basin, um, in northwest New Mexico. So the so the the uh, tribal water rights for the Na- for the Navajos in New Mexico, they're also in Arizona and in Utah. But we got our our rights settled within the state of of New Mexico. We also had the Amut settlement, which was the Nambe, Puaque, Tisuque, and San Eldofonso. Uh, we got that uh, that settlement uh, settled, and in the Taos Pueblo settlement. So those three were that was a major accomplishment. So not only did we um, quantify water rights, uh, with it came uh, federal dollars for infrastructure. And if you put all three of those settlements together, there was close to two billion dollars worth of infrastructure improvements 
to get wet water to um, to tribes, uh, pueblos, and nations within the state of New Mexico. So that was a huge one. The other one was the whole um, active water resource management uh, initiative that we put together in New Mexico, which allowed us to put water masters out in the field. We metered uh, a lot of uses within the state of New Mexico. Uh, we put together rules and regulations on on how to do that. And so it was, um, you know, if you if you think about uh, managing water, you really can't manage what you don't measure. And so it was very important to have management uh, with measuring and metering devices and have physical presence in the field to make sure people were complying with uh, and staying within their water rights. Regards to the settlements, I've heard that they were in progress for quite a while before they were like determined. How long were those three being negotiated before you ended up settling them? Yeah, uh, there was, um, I, I think the Amut settlement was the longest at, at the time, was the longest standing litigation. It was in litigation for over 40 years. Um, and so when we, when we finally got to the point where we had some commitments and, uh, and moved everything uh, forward, uh, we were able to do it, um, do those three settlements in a, about a two and a half year time frame uh, in the mid 2000s. So in the 2004 2005 time frame, we got it all. Uh, we got them all done, but the the actual litigation and the uh, the adversity was going on for uh, you know four decades essentially before we we decided to focus on it and and get it done. So uh, that was a huge deal. Now most of the communities actually have, uh, you know, running water. The Navajo Gallup water supply project is being constructed and, and trying to get wet water uh, to the, the Navajo Nation folks uh, that have been having to haul water for, for a number of years. Yeah. So I'm from Taos, so I know a little bit about the Aveda settlement. But how long was that one in process in litigation, well, that one was they were they were all multiple decades uh, and in litigation. Once uh, once we finally got them settled, uh, it still it, it still takes probably I would say eight to ten years to implement them because you still have to have a number of uh, different agreements that are signed. You still have to have the infrastructure that's being constructed, and you're and they're all predicated upon getting federal funding. So most of the Indian water rights settlements, they, they come with uh, infrastructure funding from the federal government, and those are subject to appropriations. And so you can imagine, uh, especially the Navajo settlement, which is close to a billion and a half dollars on its own, it takes several, uh, several funding increments from, from Congress to be able to get that uh, funded and constructed. And so, uh, yeah, that one's been in that one's been in in place for for at least a decade after we got the settlement done, so that we could implement the the terms of the settlement. So, yeah, there's a there's a, a negotiation, there's a there's a litigation phase, a negotiation phase, and then typically a construction phase to get the project in place. So, uh, yeah, a lot of years to, to get that in place. Yeah, that's really cool. What was your favorite part of working at the office of the state engineer? For for me, my favorite part was uh, the the challenging issues that we had 
but and that we had to work on uh, in conjunction with the the great people that we had that were part of the team that were working on all these issues. So, um, you know, we we all pulled together. We we had uh, we had a, a what I considered a, a a book standard book of business that I was trying to put in place, and I mentioned a little bit about about active water resource management. Uh, you know, New Mexico has a 400-year history of communities um, using water in the state. Um, you know, the, obviously, we had the tribes, pueblos, nations that that have been in New Mexico since uh, what we call time immemorial. But we also had the uh, the Spaniards that moved in in the late 1500s uh, that that uh, established the Asequia communities in northern New Mexico, and so we've had. You know, we've had uh, New Mexico has a 400 plus year history of communities that had to share water in times of shortage. And so uh, when you get into what we call the prior appropriation system, you know, every bit of water in New Mexico is considered appropriated. But if you look at how New Mexico is set up, we have a comprehensive water administration system. We have New Mexico that uh, has significant resources to comply with eight different interstate compacts. And then New Mexico is one of the states that actively manages both surface and groundwater, which a lot of states don't. So, you know, just the basic concepts of, of Western water law and being able to put water to beneficial use, all water in New Mexico belongs to the public. But the unappropriated water is available for appropriation, and that prior appropriation doctrine is is the what they call the first in time, first in right. So whoever put water to beneficial use the earliest had the senior water right, and then and then when you put that water to what we call beneficial use, uh, that's the the beneficial use of the water. That's the measure and the limit of a water right. So. Um, in order to maintain a water right in New Mexico, you have to have uh, a point of diversion, a place of use, and you have to have continuous use. And all that stuff has to be monitored by people in the field, uh, aerial photography, others to make sure that somebody hasn't forfeited or, or abandoned their water rights. And so um, it's a process that's been in place for uh, many years. And in, in New Mexico, the, the Water Code was actually enacted in 1907, uh, which is prior to statehood. So we actually had a territorial, a, couple, a few territorial engineers before we had a state engineer in New Mexico. And um, so the, in 1907, when the Water Code was in, enacted, it was really exclusively to regulate diversion of surface water. In 1931, when pump technology started happening, you had uh, the Groundwater Act that extended the state engineer's authority to those areas where the state engineer would declare an underground basin. So in other words, hey, we saw some issues where groundwater, taking groundwater out of the ground was starting to affect surface supply, which goes into that conjunctive management of surface and groundwater what do you mean by the water code? What is that? So the the water code, uh, uh, they call it the 1907 water code, that's surface water. Those are the rules, regulations, the, the laws, 7212. Uh, so chapter 7212 is, the, is where the water code is located within the state statutes. And so there's a whole series of statutes that the state engineer has to comply with 
in order to permit the use of water. Applications are are filed with the state engineer's office for any any use of water uh, that's uh, anticipated or contemplated in New Mexico, and it goes through an application process before the state engineer before. Uh, the the state can appropriate uh, that water for beneficial use. And the things that the state engineer, there's three main issues that the state engineer has to look at when applications are before him. And number one is, are you going to impair anybody that already has an existing right that's near the place of use or the, the point of, or any point of diversion? So look, checking for impairment. And then if, is it contrary to conservation within the state of New Mexico or is it detrimental to the public welfare of the state of New Mexico? So uh, the state engineer has a series of, of technical uh, evaluations that they have to look at. Uh, if you pump uh, so much water out of this well for a certain period of time, there's a drawdown effect that happens. And, uh, and does that drawdown effect start interfering with other existing water rights that are already permitted? So there's a there's a whole process that's uh, that's involved, um, and so the water when we say the water code, there's a there's a series of surface water uh, regulations, and uh, in 1931 the groundwater regulations uh, were, they came in to uh, to help make sure the surface water wasn't affected by the groundwater extraction. Cool, thank you. You also mentioned. Um, something about creating a standard business plan. And I was wondering what you meant by that. Well, when you look at, um, and if you're, if you're talking about this, the standard business plan on, on the active water resource management, you know, you've got what I call an integrated management in New Mexico. You have, we talked a little bit about staffing and funding, right? You're funded because you're a, you're an organization that's trying to, trying to regulate water use in New Mexico. Uh, you have to deal with the supply issues and long-term droughts, which uh, we are pretty accustomed to. But there's also policy and and now uh, innovation, I would say, to, to look at new uses of water, new sources of water. How do you look at, at, um, at uh, opportunities within the state of New Mexico? So understanding that we, I mentioned the 400-year history of communities sharing water when we've had shortages, when you go to a prior appropriation state, um, the way it's supposed to work is if you have, say, 70% of a normal supply of water in a, in a given year and everything is fully appropriated already, 30% of the use uh, the uses that are permitted are are the most junior users might not get water and that has a could have a huge detrimental effect to uh, a bunch of um, uh, you know businesses or uh, communities different different uses uh, uh, typically the the senior uses in in New Mexico are are agriculture so you've got the tribes and pueblos that have been here you have you have the sequias that have a lot of senior uses and you have this big irrigation companies. So a lot of agriculture has senior use, uses. Uh, and then later on, you develop drinking water uses. Uh, uh, you, you've got the mining and, um, and other uses that are, were permitted later. And so if you're going to cut off uh, water rights, you wind up affecting 
uh, economies. You could cut off a, a drinking water supply or you could uh, some sort of mining use or other use that's junior. And so um, one of the concepts on shortage sharing and one of the, the active water resource management initiative that, um, that I was able to put in place with, with, my, uh, with my team, uh, we identified uh, you know, several priority basins within the state of New Mexico we established water master districts, which means we had water masters out in the field that were helping uh, enforce water rights and water rights priorities. Uh, I wound up issuing several metering orders uh, throughout the state of New Mexico to require metering, which was not uh, fully in place uh, for the decades that we were managing water. Uh, that was very controversial. It was it was hard to get done, but we were able to to do that. And uh, and then we developed some some uh, framework uh, rules, what we call district specific regulations for water management, including how to share shortages. And so, um, um, the what essentially what you put in place and what we're trying to put in place throughout the state of New Mexico was enable uh, enable an agricultural community say. Because in New Mexico, probably seventy-five to eighty percent of the water is used in agriculture. So, if you're going to be able to manage yourself through a drought scenario and not cut off, say, an important drinking water use or other use, you can put in place uh, a shortage sharing, which would allow voluntary, uh, voluntary uh, fallowing essentially of of agricultural land, and allow for that consumptive use portion to be transferred. To a higher, maybe economic use, the the agricultural water user would get compensated for not using uh, his water for his crop that particular year, and instead lease it to um, um, somebody that's a junior water right holder, so that they can continue with their uh, business or maybe with a drinking water project or whatever it may be. And so those are, those are the concepts uh, that we tried to put in place. Um, when I left, um, you know, after the Richardson administration, those district specific regulations didn't really get done. And so you had asked me earlier, why did you come back? Well, I wanted, I wanted to get back on track so that we could start putting, uh, those, uh, district specific regulations in place. So we would have a better opportunity to manage, uh, ourselves through these drought scenarios that, are continuing to happen to this day and will continue to happen for the rest of the time. That's really cool. What was one of the biggest challenges that you faced as the state engineer and how did you handle it? Well, I think, um, I think the, the, the biggest challenge is, is always, um, is putting something in place, uh, a water management, um, I, it's a scheme, but it, it's, uh, it's dealing with, a state that's growing, uh, growing in population. Um, we're completely challenged. Um, we're hydrologically challenged because we don't have enough. Uh, we don't have enough water. And how do you maintain a a a growing economy? Allow for reasonable economic development, and make sure that you're not. Um, cutting off people's water uses in other words do you have a do you have a a functioning system in place 
And I mentioned active water resource management that would allow for you to manage yourselves out of drought periods. And, and uh, when, when, times are, uh, when times are bad and then go back into full production of, of agriculture. And so you need to, you need, need to leave some water, uh, probably a large amount of water, into the agricultural area. Not only is it good for the economy, uh, it, uh, it obviously gives us an ability to, uh, to, you know, to raise our own food and food sources and things of that nature, but it also allows for some flexibility when we do get into droughts where we could allow for some voluntary transfers of water into other uses. And then, and then the other biggest challenge, a big challenge is how do you get technology to look and look and, and utilize new sources of water? We've got a, an enormous uh, oil and gas uh, industry out there that uh, has a lot of what we call produced water. Produced water is a byproduct of, of the oil production and um, it's nasty water. Uh, it's really, we don't even call it water. We call it a byproduct. And so it's not even uh, managed by the state engineer's office until it gets treated and, uh, and, and cleaned up so that it can actually be used for beneficial use. And there's a whole lot of things that are happening in that area now on trying to clean up that water, looking at technologies. And the state of New Mexico through the New Mexico Environment Department is promulgating rules and regulations on how to use some of that water. Uh, but you've got that as a potential source of water. You've got a lot of uh, inland desalination opportunities. Um, there's there's a the K Bailey Hutchinson plant in El Paso is a really uh, a nice example of how you can use inland desalinization to to use um, uh, the brackish water supplies that we have and use them to take pressure off of off of um, clean water, uh, fresh water supplies, and to use those for different purposes. Uh, we, one of the challenges that I saw when I came back was we were using probably too much fresh water in some of the fracking processes in southeast, uh, southeastern New Mexico. And we started to try to open the opportunities to use brackish water to flood some of those hydrocarbon zones to in, in, increase and enhance production. And, and it's starting to move in that direction, which is nice. And so how do we get the, the technology to, to clean up the water, both the produced water and the brackish water supplies, and to use those for, um, you know, for beneficial uh, processes? The other, the other big threat and challenge was the state of Texas coming in and suing New Mexico for what they claimed as under deliveries to the state of Texas. And uh, that was a huge effort uh, that I was heavily involved with in my last three years as state engineer. And I think New Mexico uh, did a phenomenal job by putting a team together to defend uh, against the, the, the state of Texas. And uh, we're in a, in a pretty good place right now on that lawsuit. And the Supreme Court's um, going to make a ruling on on an agreement that uh, the state engineer's office put in place with a lot of other input from others around the state. Cool. What's something that you would like to see in the future in terms of how New Mexico manages its water? There, there needs to be some realization that our climate is getting drier uh, and more variable. Again, everybody talks about 
climate change, uh, availability of water. Uh, we've seen that temperatures have increased, um, you know, for the last, you know, charts that I've seen for the last 90, 100 years where, you know, an average temperature has gone from maybe 50, at the, at the annual average observed temperature has gone from, you know, maybe 50, somewhere around 53 degrees to closer to, to 55, 55 and a half degrees. It doesn't seem like a lot, but when you start talking about water and, and how it affects precipitation in New Mexico and, and temperatures, it really, um, it really is a, um, a big, uh, challenge because so much of New Mexico's water supply comes from our upper elevations, the natural, uh, the natural storage we have with snowpack and snowmelt, and even changing just a couple of degrees uh, greatly lessens the snowpack that we have for our natural reservoirs, and it turns it into um, you know water versus snow that comes down uh, in a in a in a large amount, and and, and the larger the runoff, uh, the more you uh, the more you save to, to to the reservoirs, and the less you you infiltrate um, through some of our. Uh, um, the conveyance areas that that bring that water down. So, you have longer growing seasons. Agriculture's uh, lengthened the growing season. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, um, things um, negative. I would say things that happen with the dry with the hotter temperatures that we have, and we really have to look at how do we put a place and plan for for making New Mexico's water supply supply more resilient. And how do we do that? Uh, th those climate shocks that are uh, that are happening all over the West um, are are very very noticeable. And so, um, you know, severe drought continues. Um, uh, I mentioned the future projections that sh that show water resources will decrease. We we need to find gaps on how uh, not to let things get worse. And issues on how to do that, and um, so building um, what we call smart water management, being good stewards of the supply, and, and the biggest the biggest opportunity is through conservation. But that's a lot of the low hanging fruit. Uh, we really have to manage our water to meet the the needs of today, while while you know ensuring a reliable supply of clean water for the future, and and that's that's hugely important. On, on looking at these new sources of water, diversifying our water supply, looking at uh, sufficient infrastructure capacity. Uh, do we have uh, the right number of wells and storage capacity? And, and with, with changing climate, um, as we've seen it, we've got more, more storms, even in the, in the summer monsoons that, that are of higher intensity. We don't necessarily have the right infrastructure in place so uh, do we need additional, you know, dams, uh, maybe larger dams that capture water? Um, can we store more water under, underground uh, for storage and recovery is a, is a big, there's a big opportunity there. Uh, our watershed health, the forest and riparian areas uh, need to be healthy so that, uh, again, water that, that, that does happen to fall through precipitation and snowpack can, can infiltrate and recharge our aquifers. Uh, so those, those are, those are all, um, you know, they all work hand in glove. If we're going to be able to improve 
um, your your um, your ability to to increase water supply and, and increase your your resilience. And so uh, those are those are all important issues. We have um, um, one of the other big challenges too is the Colorado River. People. Uh, don't really fully understand how the Colorado River affects New Mexico, but the San Juan Basin is is one of the is is probably arguably uh, the, the stream system that holds the most water in New Mexico, and um, shortages um, that we suffer in the Middle Rio Grande through Middle Rio Grande supplies are augmented by the Colorado River through our San Juan Chama project. And so the cities of Albuquerque, you know, Santa Fe, Española, uh, a lot of the areas even up north, they all have allotments of, of um, San Juan Chama water. And we're going through some uh, some major droughts and some um, planning in the Colorado River that if we continue to get those shortages and if we still have delivery obligations from the upper basin in Colorado to the lower basin in Colorado, it can trickle down to shortages uh, that our communities would have to suffer and, and translates into that water supply that has augmented the middle Rio Grande. So there's a lot of concerns there from the, from the Colorado system also. And so, uh, you know, it's almost, it's almost endless and, and, uh, but I've always been, a, the glass is half full versus the glass is half empty person. And I think, you know, we've got, we've got the younger generation, you and your peers that are getting their engineering degrees and uh, are problem solvers and are, are uh, and we need to pass the baton to the, to the next generation to, to solve these issues. And so um, I'm, I'm excited about uh, people that, as yourself that are interested in going into this area interested in, in, uh, in passing and, and having the dialogue so that we can all kind of learn from each other and and make sure that we're not neglecting something that's so critical and so important to the state of New Mexico. We're also getting into an era where we're, we're having better data, better data sets. And, and it's, it's so important for water managers to have uh, access to useful data for water, water management and planning, and how do we uh, how do we share that and make sure that you know the the state and federal water managers are are talking to each other. We really need to try to avoid interstate litigation um, because litigation avoidance uh, is uh, it's much better to spend money on solutions and fixing problems and agreeing to to how to share shortages, how to improve and use information and data. There's, there's a whole lot of things that, that we can do. There's, there's atmospheric rivers that bring an enormous water supply into Northern California. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the Corps of Engineers is, has implemented what they call forecast-informed reservoir operations where they change water control manuals that have been in place for 40 or 50 years to maybe allow more storage in in a facility that was just for flood control, but that affects water supply up and down a system that can that can help um, uh, you know how how we manage water and create more usable water instead of sending some of the flood uh, the flood flows just directly back into the ocean. There's ways to to be able to use it. So we we've got to we've got to work through. 
policy and innovation. And I think that's that's where um, I would like this, the next generation to focus on is that policy and in, innovation on on how to improve uh, our um, beneficial use of water. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about data in there, and I'm curious. Um, you've been in this field for a while, and what do you see as kind of the next um, technological, perhaps breakthrough, that will change our approach to managing water? Well, I think um, I think cleaning the water, so filtration uh, improvements. Um, I, I mentioned uh, produced water. Uh, and it's, um, and so those, you know, it's a lot of it's done through membranes, but when you get the, the, uh, through the desalination process, but when you get into the water, that's got TDS levels of greater than a hundred thousand parts per million, uh, there's thermal distillation. There's other, there's other things that are, are, are more, more effective and more efficient, and so it's 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 there's got to be a lot of a lot more water reuse. Uh, the the thing that uh, is is not well accepted is the toilet to tap sort of concept, where you're taking water and retreating it uh, to the quality that can it can be used again and again and again. And I think I think uh, those those technologies, uh, so water quality technologies are are there, and just and then being able to harness our um, our changing environment and a lot of the flood flows that happen, are we able to put infrastructure in place that we can capture more of that water? Can we infiltrate and deep well inject it or, or, uh, or, or through, through aquifer storage and recovery and eliminate the evaporative loss components of that water? Um, those are the, those are the types of things that uh, that uh, I'm excited about because those are the things that that can really stretch a water supply, uh, and so um, and the other the other aspect is is a little bit of um, transferring bulk water from certain areas to other areas, and and the Western United States, like I said, seventy five to eighty percent, and most of the states are using agriculture, and you don't want to you don't want to give get rid of agriculture. But you can take a little water out of agriculture, the consumptive use portion, and use it smartly, uh, pipe the water. So there's engineering solutions to, to, to utilize uh, and pump bulk water resources from some communities to other communities to enhance that water supply. And um, it, it's, it, that's not popular in, in many circles, but it's, uh, it's an extreme necessity to be able to do that. But making sure you're you're protecting the area of origin, and that's why in New Mexico we only allow for the consumptive use portion of a water right uh, to be transferred, uh, and the same would go for uh, for water and bulk water transfers, where you allow for a consumptive use portion to be be diverted, but not not what the crop would have taken. Um, and um, there there are many examples of that throughout the Western United States. Interesting. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you wish I had or anything else that you would like to comment on? I think more than anything, there's, there's not enough information, uh, correct information that's out there on, on water resources. 
And, um, and so there's, there's a lot of, uh, misunderstanding of say compacts and compact law. And, uh, a lot of people say, Hey, how, how come we're giving all our water to the state of Texas? Or how come we're, we're doing this or that? And, and, uh, that's, those are, um, there's so much misinformation that swirls around those different areas. Uh, the, the litigation that we had with the state of Texas, um, we were totally reliant on groundwater, surface water models that were, our, our modeling was a lot more robust than the state of Texas's. We could see that that was coming and we, and we could actually show uh, the, the, the science behind <clears throat> the decisions that we were making and the claims that we could refute that Texas was asserting that we were using, uh, too much water. And, uh, and we were able to, um, to, uh, you know, come, come to a, a, what I feel was a, a good solution, uh, hopefully will be endorsed by the, the Supreme court. But, but the bottom line is you still need good, technical analysis you need good surface groundwater modeling and interactions of that modeling and you need to be able to um, in layman's terms communicate those issues to the general public so that you can get political support and buy off on what you're trying to accomplish so it's real it's really important uh, to be um, you know to have the technical understanding and the technical knowledge but also to really fully understand policy and rules and regulations that are associated with managing water. And, and you've got to put all those things together and, and, and you're nothing without a very good team. And that's a team of, of engineers, hydrologists, lawyers, and, uh, and just, uh, uh, and policy people and, and making sure that uh, you all are all working together uh, so that you understand the issues associated with it and, and, and be inclusive in your planning. And that means all the stakeholders. You, you have to involve uh, uh, tribes, pueblos, and nations, the Asakia community. You have to involve all the agricultural uses, the municipalities, industrial users. You've got to get everybody to the table uh, so that you can come up with a solution that works. And uh, I think we've done that to a great extent in New Mexico and uh, and we can all do better and, and continue to, to go in that area. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. I am Jamie Ritchie, the host, editor, and producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.